ahead and start our message this morning uh, on Sunday morning, August 29th, 2010. It's called Rosh Hashanah, the last trumpet. Rosh Hashanah is a Jewish feast that takes place in the upcoming month of Tishri. Right now we're in the month of Yul, which is E-L-U-L. I covered most of that last week. Uh, forgive me, some of the details are fuzzy. We have not slept a lot when we gave that message. But I know that I covered the details of a wedding supper. Uh, I know that I covered the details of a Jewish marriage. And that Ul was a month that began 40 days of introspection, repentance, a season of teshuva. And I think we called the message Shemei Ratzon. Well, this one goes perfectly with it. And the reason that it does is after the month of Ul, which we're in somewhere around the 20th right now, uh, comes the month of Tishri. We go from the sixth month to the seventh month. You say, well, what difference does that make? The month of Tishri has beautiful and amazing feast in it. But I would like you to turn to Numbers 29. We'll start from the first verse when all of you are there. And um, we'll begin talking about Tishri. Two of you. Come on, where are the rest of you? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The book of Numbers, the 29th chapter, the first verse. I'm on. Ever since I told you I was going to call you out if you lied about being there, all of you are much slower to get there. Numbers 29, verse 1. On the first day of the seventh month, which I'm telling you is the month of Tishri, on the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets. In the Bible, trumpets are almost always shofars. They look like this ram's horn that is up here. The way that you get a ram's horn is you take the king of the sheep. You take his crown from him. You empty all of its blood out and you carve all of the flesh out. And then you fill it with the breath that God gave you. The Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh. And it sounds a clear sound. In the seventh month, on the first day, they were to sound a shofar. The Bible says that it would be a holy convocation. This word in Hebrew is mikra. That is M-I-K-R-A-H, mikra. And it means holy convocation. That's why it's translated that way. But the other thing that it means, and it is translated that way even in modern Hebrew, is rehearsal. If you were going to go to a rehearsal dinner before a wedding, it would be a mikra, because it's both a holy convocation and it is a rehearsal for an actual event. Every year that Israel did this on the first day of the seventh month, every time they sounded the shofar, the crown of the king of the sheep, hollowed of its blood and its flesh and filled with the Spirit of God, every time they did that, it was rehearsing for an event that would come later in history. The first of Tishri was a special day because it would announce that Yom Kippur was coming. Yom Kippur is the Hebrew day on which God set aside for the whole nation to have atonement in a single afternoon. In a single day, an entire nation would be set right with God. And so the Word says all Israel will be saved because on the Day of Atonement in the seventh month, always all Israel was saved. Would you get excited then in the month of Tishri? You'd be waiting for a trumpet to sound. You'd be waiting for your whole nation to get right. And the previous month of Ul, some 30 days, and then extending into Tishri, was a time of Yemei Ratzon from last week. The days 
of God's favor where you could still repent before atonement came. We looked last week and we saw that there were many overtones of Jewish weddings in this. Do you remember that a Jewish groom coming to get his bride would blow a shofar to announce his coming? Well, every year before God showed up, descended upon Israel to make His bride beautiful and right and pure and clean, it was announced with a shofar. Everything that happens in the Jewish wedding happened to the nation of Israel. Everything that happens to the nation of Israel happens to the body of Christ because the bride of Christ is the nation of Israel. It occurs at a new moon. This means that the primary light-giving vessel in the sky on the first of Tishri, the heavens become darkened. The moon turns a different color that night. Isn't that interesting? This time is marked by baptism, mikvah. Because during this time of favor, during the time of repentance, during the month of Ul, Many Israelites would choose to be baptized somewhere in this period just prior to the shofar sounding. The reason that they would get baptized is they were trying to cleanse themselves to get ready for the union with their God. Do you remember that during the Jewish wedding ceremony between the Shidduchin, which was the preliminary engagements in the erosion period, the betrothal period, they would get baptized. Mikvah. What Tishri is most associated with, what Rosh Hashanah is most associated with, is a time where Israel is reflecting on their God-given call to rule the nations with Messiah as their head. No different than a Jewish bride might reflect upon her time prior to being married for her God-given call to be one with her husband and perform their calling on the earth. These are beautiful, beautiful things that played out as rehearsals Mikras, all of the time, not mikvah, mikrah. Rehearsals in Israel, rehearsing year after year and young person after young person's life. Every time, seven months out of the year, this was happening. Rosh Hashanah becomes so associated with something good about to happen, so associated with a, a new beginning of sorts, kind of a born-again experience that the rabbis declared it to be the head of the year, which is what Rosh Hashanah means. In other words, a new year. That's funny because there's 13 months in the year. <laughs> but in the seventh month, they said, Nope, we're new again. <laughs> when God gave them the Exodus, the Passover, the Pesach, it was not the first month of the year, but God said it is now. I want you to understand two times a year they said it was a new year when it was not a new year. That ought to give you some hope, saints, if you had to get saved every day of your life like me. If that hurts your theology, I'm sorry. I realize to you salvation may be experienced at an altar at some point in your life. For me, salvation has been a very ongoing temporal and spiritual experience. This event that was the spiritual new year began with something. If we're going to start on the first of Tishri, if we're going to begin uh, moving our days of uh, repentance to more of a day of getting ready to do what God has called you to do. If there's a transition happening during this 40-day period, the next 10 days of Tishri before we get to Yom Kippur are going to be marked by our desire to rule the nations, which is what God has called. So the next feast that is coming, Yom Kippur, it begins with a prayer. 
And every Israelite knew they were going to have to pray this prayer. So the first of Tishri comes, and for ten days they begin thinking about this prayer that is coming. This prayer is called the Kol Nidri. K-O-L, new word, Nidri. N-I-D-R-E-Y. The Kol Nidri was coming. And it's the way that they began the Day of Atonement. And the Kol Nidri is a prayer that says, Mighty God, we have made many vows to you. And we have not been able to keep our vows. We are not everything that you have said we should be. And we ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would make us new in your presence today. Come on now. Has nobody in here ever prayed a cold injury? One thing that I love about the Jewish liturgy, if you will, I understand that many times we as Christians have said, oh no, all of that is no longer important. Those people, God forgive me for speaking like a fool, rejected Jesus. And so what they have to say is not important. And what the rabbis did after Jesus, I mean, we might consider before Jesus, but after Jesus, they didn't even have the Spirit of God. Really? You can't be saved except through Yeshua. I will give you that. But to say that God no longer works in Israel is to say that God no longer works in your life. Because as it goes with the nation of Israel, so it goes with you. Our redemption is only with them. So it should not surprise you that every reform to Judaism that was made from the second century forward, every effort to distinguish themselves from Christianity, they considered Christianity the religion of the Gentiles and Judaism, the religion of the Jews, every effort to further distinguish themselves seems to paint an even better picture of Jesus. It kills me, and yet it enlivens me. Somebody can have in their heart a desire to separate themselves from the truth and because they are God's chosen vessel of truth, in spite of themselves, they continue to speak truth. Wow. The opening prayer of the Yom Kippur is when the people ask God to forgive them for all the vows that they have been unable to keep and Israel's biggest struggle comes in Exodus 17. Turn with me to Exodus 17. If you didn't understand what I was saying about Reformed Judaism, not speaking of the actual denomination of Judaism, but Rabbinic Judaism, if you don't understand what I'm saying about it, it will become more clear. And yet, our message today is about Yeshua, I promise. In Exodus 17, starting in verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Rephidim was a place of rest. What were they resting from? Well... Israel had just come through the chaos and confusion of the Exodus where Pharaoh's chariots were descending upon them and all of the people were being harassed. And a man of God stood and raised his staff and God split a Red Sea. And what happened? The people passed through. They were baptized. They came out on the other side and who was drowned in the water? All of the chaos. Now they were resting from that chaos, that destruction, that evil power at work that was trying to oppress them. They were resting. And what happened again? The Amalekites descended upon them. Amalekite is a word that means warlike valley dweller. (laughs) Have you never been in a valley in your life and found yourself at war with people that only wanted to fight? If we go from glory to glory, mountain peak to mountain peak, I want to learn how to step like that. Because I tend to slide right down the hill into the valley. There are no water wells on the top of mountains. Very few crops can grow on the top of mountains. 
where God forms His people is while dealing with the warlike valley people. This is where crops grow. An olive tree will actually not even grow in good soil. It grows best in nasty soil. If the soil has too much rock in it, if the soil doesn't have enough nutrients in it, olive trees flourish. We grow in the valley. Well, Israel was given a warning at the end of this. Listen, it's in verse 15. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of Yahweh. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Do you remember the story what had happened? Moses stands and he raises his hands. And Aaron stands on one side and Hur stands on the other. And in Moses' hands are the righteous commands of God, the staff. And somebody was fighting for God's people down in the valley. His name was Yehoshua, Yeshua, Joshua. And as long as Moses' hands were held high, Joshua won in the valley and defeated the warlike valley dwellers and the people of God were delivered from chaos. Say, well, what all does this have to do with what we're speaking of today? It was important enough that 40, day, or 40 years after the event in Deuteronomy 25, God speaks again and says, I want you to remember what the Amalekites did. How they tried to strike down all of the stragglers. How they descended upon you while you were at rest and attacked the weak and the elderly. Do not ever stop being at war with them. Apparently God was holding a grudge. When the Jewish rabbis read this, they made a connection, a connection that you might not make, a connection that would be hard to see even in English. Turn with me to Genesis 1. Tell me when you're in Genesis 1. It's a hard, hard book to find. You have to turn through the table of contents in the preface. And for the credits from everybody that did not write this book that have credits in it. The man who wrote it took no credit. The man who published it have pages of credits. In Genesis 1, very familiar verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 Now the earth was formless and empty. The earth was formless and empty. In Hebrew, this is a great phrase. It's something that's so fun to say you can't hardly stop it. <laughs> tohu, <laughs> tohu vavohu. <laughs> Isn't that great? Tohu vavohu. I promise I'm not making this up. Tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu means this. It means to lay in waste from warlike destruction. That's the first word, tohu. Vavohu is empty, an undistinguishable ruin. The way it's most often translated in Jewish literature outside the Bible, chaos. The Bible says that God began with the earth when it was in tohu vavohu, undistinguishable ruin and chaos that is the result of waste and warlike desolation. English says formless and empty, formless and void. They all mean the same thing. And yet one has just a little more ring to it. What the Hebrews heard in this is, wow, our God is so good. 
he looked upon the earth's situation and he saw that it was tohu vavohu. And he could have wiped out all of that destruction. He could have wiped out all of that chaos. But he loved man enough to leave a piece of the pie for us. Instead, he created a people and left God's job to man. Straighten out the chaos. Replenish the earth. You remember that from Genesis 2.28? Mm. Go forth and fill the earth. He ordered man and he ordered the kingdom and lives of men and wanted us to go and drive out the spiritual Amalekites, the warlike valley dwellers who only want to cause chaos, destruction, tohu, tohu vavohu. In the beginning, God did not destroy all chaos, said the rabbis, but left some Amalek there so that man could take an active role in destroying it. This cycle is both outward and inward because during the days of Rosh Hashanah they considered the fact that they had failed to keep the vow of destroying Amalek and not just Amalek outside the physical descendants of Amalek but Amalek inside and the reason that they saw this is they looked at the areas of their life where they had made vows to God and had not kept it they looked at the areas of their life where they had failed to be what God called them to be. And then they made a pledge to do something. Takun haulam. Go out and repair the world. See, Israel did not want power for the sake of being powerful. Christians often pray, Lord, give me more power, give me more power, give me more power. The question is why? What is it you'd like to do with it? Show off? Sell books? Get a weird hairstyle and a purple throne and go on TV? Israel wanted to be set right with God as the head of the nations that they might fulfill their God calling to repair the world. How beautiful is that? It's hard to notice or not notice, escape from noticing that even atheistic Jews around the world dedicate themselves to sciences and arts and humanitarian efforts. They can't help it. It's in their God-given DNA they were put here to help repair the world. This is why all major wars, all major contributions seem to flow straight from the descendants of Abraham. I said wars, I meant the resolution of wars. No Mel Gibson quotes in here today. <laughs> Turn with me to Philippians. Come on, are you hearing anything that is not commonly taught? Yes. If you're here and you're saying, what is all this Jewish stuff? Well, I fell in love with the Jewish Messiah. I thought it best to learn His ways. I thought it best to learn what His Bible looked like, how they prayed it, how they read it, how they walked it. I thought it would be better than just wearing a bracelet that said, what would Jesus do? In Hebrews 2, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, I want you to hear this. Dear friends, 2.12, As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. During the month of Tishri, the people of Israel worked out their salvation with fear and trembling. 
They knew that they were Israel, that they were princes with God, that they were destined to be saved. They knew that they had been called to save, been delivered from Egypt and walking with God, but they worked out their salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, where have my vows laid before You that I have not fulfilled? Where have I failed to deal with chaos in my life and outside of my life? And they sought to get right because the trumpets were sounding. Come on, saints, is there not a word in that for us? Listen to this next word. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. When they pray the Kol Nidri, God, this is beautiful. One man stands and recites, but he has one person on his right and one person on his left as he holds the scroll to read. Just like Moses stood and had someone hold right arm and hold left arm. Do you know why the Jews say this? And I'm talking about Jews a thousand years after Jesus lived. Because no man can work his own salvation. He can only lift up the works of his hands to God and ask God to work in him. Come on now. Isn't that beautiful, that salvation by grace? Israel practiced this as a mikra. A rehearsal, year after year. Some Orthodox Israelites still practice this. Has the church failed to practice it? No, we just want to be raptured from responsibility. Let Israel burn while we all fly away and play harps on clouds. Again, I speak like a fool. The Bible has no such promises in it. The promises are for Israel. And you only join with Israel in her promises. She is the bride of Christ. You are the wild olive shoot that got included in her number. You are like Ruth the Moabitess. And so am I. Another integral part of Rosh Hashanah. Another word you might want to write down is the Akedah, A-K-E-D-A-H, Yitzhak. Akedah, Yitzhak. This is the telling of the story of the binding of Isaac. During Akedah, A-K-E-D-A-H, Akedah, Yitzhak. Yitzhak is the Hebrew way to say Isaac. Akedah, Yitzhak is the story of the binding of Isaac. The reason I'm telling you these things, the reason that I told you about the Kol Nidri, the reason that I told you about the Genesis connection, and I'm now telling you about Akedah Yitzhak is because all of these are in the synagogue's liturgy during the month of Tishri. <laughs> Come on now, have you ever, some, anybody in here ex-Catholic or present Catholic still? All right, we got, we got quite a few hands went up. I'll ask for that distinction between those two things after the service. You could look at liturgy and religion and say, oh, wow, you know, it's all a bunch of garbage. And I have done that many times. You know, a bunch of it is garbage. But even when the Jewish liturgy has sought to distinguish itself from Christianity, when it sought to put a barrier up and say, no, no, we are different, without meaning to, the people of God have actually endorsed the Messiah. In fact, if you grow up doing these things, rehearsing them over and over and over, and then you picked up a Jewish New Testament, a New Testament that maybe preserved a few of the Jewish names and feasts that are actually written into the text, 
you couldn't help but see it. I can think of nothing better that exhibits that than the Akedah Yitzhak. Listen to this. It's Genesis 22. Tell me when you're there. I don't expect everybody to remember all these Hebrew names. I write them in my Bible. I didn't grow up with them. When I go to Mexico, Fable's not there to remind me what all of the words mean I don't remember. But I definitely remember the concepts. And I want you to remember these concepts. You in Genesis 22? Yes. Every Rosh Hashanah, the people in the synagogues begin to recite the Akedah Yitzhak, or the telling of the story of the binding of Isaac. Listen to this. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. Your son, your only son. If you're going to say that in the King James, you might say, your only begotten son. Or your son, your one and only. There are a lot of ways to translate it, but the idea is always the same. The father of all nations, Abraham. The exalted father, father of all nations, would take his promised son, his only son, his son whom he loved, and do something. Whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. The region of Moriah is the exact same region that the Temple Mount was on. It is the exact same region, Aruna's threshing floor. It is the exact same region that the crucifixion occurred on. Say one of the mountains there. It's because Moriah is actually a mountain range and not a mountain. Is the mountain range connected to Zion, the city that God loves? So the father of the nations took his promised son to a special mountain in Moriah, Calvary, Golgotha, to sacrifice him there. This story is told every month of Tishri during Rosh Hashanah while they're waiting for a trumpet to sound and a union to occur with their God where he dwells on earth with them because they're now his spotless bride. Are you seeing a picture here? Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. The wood is placed upon the promised son, but it was the father who carried the death instrument. It was God's will, Isaiah 53 says, to crush him. Here's the important verse. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and asked something. Then look at verse 8. God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Did you hear that repetition? The two of them went on together. What do we have? We have father and son acting in perfect unison. Father and son going to a region for a sacrifice together. Their wills combined. One carrying knife, one carrying wood. The two of them went on together. In verse 9, Isaac is mentioned again. We have the knife raised. As it's about to come down, an angel speaks. After this, Isaac is not mentioned again. Abraham leaves the mountain. Look at verse 19. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. Isaac is not mentioned as coming off the mountain. Tell me you've ever noticed that. 
You know who did? Some Jewish rabbis. Oh, well, they, they must have been way back there before Jesus when God's hand was still on the nation of Israel, right? God's hands never left the nation of Israel. Rabbi Shlomo ben Isaac, in history, is called Rashi. He lived about 1000 AD. He noticed this. Most people think he was commenting on an earlier work, about 500 AD, called Mid Midrash Rabbah. They, they made a speculation that has made it into the synagogue liturgy. They said that the reason that Isaac is not mentioned, and by the way, he's not mentioned in the next chapter either. And you know what happens in the next chapter? His mama dies. Wouldn't you think he would be mentioned when his mama dies as being there? Abraham's mentioned. Abraham's servants are mentioned. But Isaac's not mentioned. I'll tell you when he is again in a second. But they began to speculate. We believe that the reason that Abraham went with Isaac as a unified act, and it says they went together twice in the Hebrew text, and then he's not mentioned again as coming off the mountain, is because God wanted to emphasize that his spirit left his body when the knife was above him. He died. And it returned to his body when the angel spoke. In other words, they're trying to teach that Isaac was figuratively resurrected from the dead. They read this during Rosh Hashanah every year and speculate about whether the promised son was raised from the dead. Are you hearing me here? Yes. Has anybody ever read the book of Hebrews in here that says figuratively Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead? Have you never read that scripture? It's Hebrews 11.19. What do you think a Jew thinks then if he picks up the book of Hebrews, a book intended for him, and he sees that that speculation's gone on 500 years before his oldest sages mentioned it. By the way, do you know when Isaac is mentioned again? Oh my God, this is beautiful. Anybody want to guess? Genesis 24:4. Who go get a bride for my son Isaac? After the resurrection, there is one thing on Isaac's mind, one thing on his plan. I have overcome death, and now I must get my pure, spotless bride. Come on now, in the month of Tishri in Israel, they are speculating, wondering about the resurrected son who is looking for his bride. This is exactly where the church should be. Except we know that He's not just the promised Son. His name is not just laughter. It is Yeshua, the Savior. He's the one that is fighting in the valley against the warlike people. He is the one that upholds the righteous standards of God. The Messiah, Yeshua, HaMashiach. But when we just say Jesus, Christ, no T, Christ, they don't recognize these things. And they don't recognize them because we have stripped a Jewish story of its Jewish identity to the point that God's people don't recognize their own story. In America, you can find a black Jesus. You can find a cracker white Jesus. You can find a Jesus of any shape, size, and color. But you rarely find a Jewish Jesus. And He's the King of the Jews. My, 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 my. How interesting is it that the tale of a sacrificed, resurrected only son made it into Rosh Hashanah, the rehearsal for the marriage of Israel to the Messiah. 
I'll say this about my Jewish brothers. Those of them that love the word are meticulous about it. They do things like count the number of times it says they went together. And then notice that it is strangely absent. Everybody knows he came off the mountain. They don't think he literally died. But they think God was trying to teach them something. They think that there is something called a hint in the scriptures, the Hebrew word for it. It's the way it translates in English. A hint. They think that the text hints at something deeper. Well, come on, saints. What does it hint at? Mm-hmm. The father of the nations took his son to a place to be sacrificed. By the way, how did this make it into Rosh Hashanah? What was caught in a thicket? What was he caught by? His shofar. What happened to him? You empty his blood, you carve out his flesh, and the Spirit of God rushes into the sacrifice, and on this mountain I provided, God said. Actually, back then, He said, on this mountain I will provide. Come on, Isaac was not the fulfillment. Yeshua is the fulfillment. Can you imagine that some Jewish scholar who loves the Lord but doesn't understand the Lord enough to be saved as you and I are in a thousand AD is considering these things and he wants to distinguish himself from those people who are probably persecuting him, to be honest, who call themselves Christians. And as he's reading the text, he says, no, we're completely different than those idolaters. We have Isaac. We have Abraham. And then he begins to tell the stories and all of a sudden it is sounding a lot like Yeshua. Only he doesn't recognize it because it is cloaked in wickedness of religion. Come on, saints. With eyes to see, Rosh Hashanah is pretty important. I didn't go through the feast schedule with you, but I might as well while I have a moment. The first feast that occurs in the first month of the year is Pesach. This is Passover. After Passover, in fact, they they join at the same time. We have unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, you take the menorah of God's Word and you search your house on your hands and knees, the father with his children, and you remove bits of leaven that were hidden in your house, and you put them in a bag, and you burn them outside. That occurred the morning after you received the Passover lamb that caused you to pass from death to life. The next festival that you would see about three days later is that you would see the first fruits offerings from the fields coming in with a scarlet cord tied around them. The priest would stand before everybody and he would wave them saying, this one has come out of the field and it is perfect. And there is more out there to be harvested. We want to give the first of our fields to you, Lord. Then 50 days after Passover, there would be Pentecost, Shavuot, This was a harvest time, but it was also a time of divine revelation. This corresponded to the month that Israel was in front of Mount Sinai and they had a divine visitation. And on this day, God, of course, spoke to His people, baptized them in His Spirit, and gave them divine revelation. Then you would have a four-month gap from the third month that, that Pentecost happened in to the seventh month, a long season where you simply waited for a trumpet to blast at Rosh Hashanah. A trumpet blast. Turn with me to Corinthians 15. 
Which Corinthians? First Corinthians 15. In Corinthians 15, look with me at the 50th verse. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood, the very thing a shofar is emptied of, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will sound. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. If you're speaking to a Jewish people, every year they waited for a trumpet. And when the last trumpet sounded, it said atonement is happening. And they were changed from something that was sinful into something that was a pure, perfect, spotless bride for the Creator of the universe. They were changed at the last trumpet. Rosh Hashanah is meant to announce Yom Kippur is on the way. That's feast number five, grace, and number six, six dealing with sin. The seventh feast celebrated all that happened. You celebrate during Sukkot, tabernacles, the time that you dwelt in, hear this, saints, tents. Having received an imperishable body from the Lord, His perfect bride, you then celebrate the time that you tabernacled in tents of flesh. Read the book of Zechariah. When Messiah returns, He forces every nation to come to Jerusalem to celebrate tabernacles, the time we dwelt intense of flesh because now we are united with Him and do not. We're in glorified bodies. Matthew 24, 30-31, guess what it says? At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And the angels will come with the trumpet call of God and gather the elect. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says, But at the last trumpet... The dead will rise. What should we be waiting for? We're between the fourth and the fifth feast. We're standing during that long period waiting for a trumpet to sound. What should we be doing? Well, we should be contemplating whether or not Amalek is in us or outside of us. What should we be doing? We should recognize that the promised Son who was sacrificed and resurrected is now seeking his bride. And he deserves the best. Do you remember who Isaac married? Rebecca. Rebecca. Rebecca means irresistible. He is looking for an irresistible bride. He is driven to her. His mother had to die first. We've experienced the death of Israel. But we've also are going to experience the resurrection of Israel. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to misunderstand me there. God has never left Himself without Israel. But there certainly was a long time period where it looked like there was no hope for her, didn't it? And yet May 14th, 1948, maybe the single biggest confirmation of God's Word in the history of mankind, a nation was born in a single day. And the church sees it as insignificant because the church does not have God's eyes. 
I actually need to break myself of saying that. The church has God's eyes. The church building and its ridiculous leaders who have built their foundation on bricks instead of the lives of men, they don't see it. If we did this and I didn't show you the next two scriptures, it would probably just be a hollow ending. But I'm not going to end with the next two scriptures. <laughs> Turn with me then to Revelation. When you get to Revelation, there's no S on that book. It is the single revelation of Jesus the Christ. Yeshua, the Hamashiach. When we get to the book of Revelation, go to the 10th chapter. And I want to offer you some thoughts here real quick. During the month of Ul, there was a time period of 40 days of fasting. Well, the month only has 30 days. So obviously, it starts in Ul, this time period of fasting and repentance. It starts in Ul and then it extends 10 days into Tishri. That means that from the month of Ul through the 10-day feast of Rosh Hashanah, there was a time of favor and repentance. Ul often started with a baptism. When it didn't start in Ul, it was sometime in Tishri, but it usually started in Ul. And after those 40 days, 30 during the month of Ul, 10 during the month of Tishri, we had the kingdom of God on earth in the sense that Israel was right with their God on that day. The princes of the universe, not Freddie Mercury's princes of the universe, God's princes of the universe. Anybody remember Jesus' ministry? He was baptized and then what happened? That's right. He went into a desert for 40 days. Baptized, then 40 days, a time to reflect and be tempted. After the 40 days, what was his very first message? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Does anybody want to take a wild guess as to what time of year it was? See, it follows the Jewish pattern. Why? Because he's the Jewish king. If you work backwards from the Passover and look through the events and the chronology given us in the Synoptic Gospels, what we find out is that Jesus was baptized sometime just before Tishri, the month of Ul. That He made His announcement, the kingdom of God is at hand, just before the Day of Atonement for the first time. And He did this three times before they killed Him. Isn't that amazing? Y'all in Revelation 10? Yes. yes. Look with me at the verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. How many trumpets are there in the book of Revelation? Seven. <laughs> but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Who were the prophets? Were they Gentiles? They were Jews. And every year they made an announcement through something. Seven feasts. On one of the feasts, there were trumpets. And on the last trumpet, it was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The mystery of God will be accomplished when the last trumpet sounds. If that one does not move you, check this one out. You only got to go one chapter to the right. It'll be the 11th chapter and the 15th verse. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, by the way, this is one of the few times you see the word heaven and not heavens. 
You know why? This event is taking place in the third, the highest heaven, the place where God's people dwell. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. He will reign forever and ever. What happens at the seventh trumpet? The kingdom that is known as earth or world becomes completely, teetotally, we used to say, subject to God. How could we know that? Because we have been rehearsing it with the nation of Israel now for several thousand years. Next time you see a bumper sticker that defines the totality of your theology, you might consider that there are thousands of years of God's people rehearsing something that have nothing to do with flying away. And yet that's not what our message is about today. Turn with me then to the book of Joshua. We're going to actually get to our text. <laughs> We're going to be in the, I don't know, sixth chapter of Joshua. There. We move from Passover where we accept our Messiah and move from death to life to unleavened bread where we sanctify our life. His power, His Holy Ghost moves through us to remove leaven. Then we begin to rejoice in the first fruits of our salvation. We start to see the first inklings of a new life. And then we are baptized in God's Holy Spirit. An amazing divine revelation overcomes us for empowering us towards the harvest on Pentecost. At Rosh Hashanah, we have been contemplating like a Jewish bride becoming one with our Jewish husband and we are waiting for the trumpet to sound that He might come and make His union with us. And on the Day of Atonement, the ring goes on the finger. We stand under the canopy and we are one with Him. That means we share His likeness, His glorified body. And then we have a seven-day feast that all the nations come to and celebrate the time where we were faithful in these tents and now have received buildings from God that cannot perish and the nations look and tremble. And what was Israel's calling? To be a priest among the nations. And what is the church's calling? To be a nation of priests, everyone. This is the plan of God and it is wrapped up in the feast and it is ignored because our scholars learn Greek and have no interest in the Hebrew way of life, which is what God designed. By the way, many times people have said, oh, well, it's about 4,000 years from Adam to the cross, and from the cross it's been, oh, 2,000 years, and you never go and look. I did it, I did it, I did it. I was so shocked to find out when you add up the begats, Depending on the way that you interpret it, you can get a 7,500 year period or you can get a 5,000 year period. Things like Leverite marriage where if Matthew and I were brothers and I die before I have children, Matt has children for me with my widow and those children are accounted to me make it difficult in the genealogy to know exactly what year. When a child is stoned for insolence and removed from the record and another child is adopted into it, it makes it difficult to know the year. But if we had to bet, would you bet on a Greco-Roman calendar? Or would you bet on a Jewish calendar? Jewish. Because we're in the year 5770 in the Jewish calendar. 
Hmm. Before the end of the fifth month, at the end of the fifth month, beginning of the sixth month, there may be a trumpet that's going to sound. Look at Joshua 6 with me. Don't you guys get nervous? Eric does not predict the day or the hour the Messiah is coming. <laughs> I like the way John Hagee said it. As much I disagree with Hagee about, but he speaks so eloquently, I find it hard to disagree with him about anything. That I don't have to debate with him. He says, I'm not going to tell you the day or the hour, but I will tell you the month the Messiah is going to come. <laughs> the Jewish people have not rehearsed this for thousands of years so that it would be done differently by their Jewish king. Joshua 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. We've just crossed the Red Sea. We've just circumcised all Israel, renewed their covenant with God. So that now, we have the obedient people of God in the new land and they are facing something. They are facing a walled city that represents the world. Then the Lord said to Joshua, whose name is also Yeshua, See, I have delivered Jericho, the world, into your hands along with its king, Satan, and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. Does it surprise you? that they read this scripture on Rosh Hashanah? When they took over Jericho that symbolizes the world, they carried a shofar, the king of the sheep's crown, hollowed of his blood, hollowed of his flesh, circumcised in his very heart with them. And for six days... By the way, sometime read Psalm 90. A day says a thousand years to the Lord. Wow, that's an interesting one. Interesting enough that Peter picked it up in 1 Peter 3.8, almost like he was Jewish and knew the Scripture. <clears throat> they carried one of these around. This was their armament. What was their armament? That they could be filled with the Spirit of God and sound with the authority of the King of the Sheep. And the walls of the world would crumble before them. Well, if you have seven days and you have trumpets, what would be the last trumpet? The seventh, when the kingdom of the world becomes God's. And what happened, friends? On the seventh day, they marched around seven times, kind of like near the end of man's rule on the calendar. There was a sevenfold intensification. Some might call it seven seals, some might call it seven trumpets. But when the last one sounded, it symbolized something. The people of God are one with Him and the world is theirs. Are you getting it? Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. You read the book of Revelation and what do we have? A heavenly city that has been set up upon the earth. A tree within its midst that is the tree of life. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. For six days men will announce something about the king of the sheep. 
Psalm 90 verse 4 says, a day is as a thousand years. But there is a day coming when the announcement will turn into the blast of a shofar. And you are either one with Israel and therefore one with God, or you are not. But there is a day when all Israel will be saved. That is an amazing truth. I want to show you one more scripture. I meant to read you the whole Jericho story, but if you don't know the Jericho story, sit with me after church. I'll read it to you. Just listen to this. I'll tell you where it is later. I'm not lying to you. Lord, why do you delay in your coming? Mighty God, why do your people not seem to see you? Holy One, why is the church so incredibly filled with corruptness? The church building, anyway. Why is your bride so hard to identify? Lord, how do you put up with wickedness? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years are as a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Rahab was saved out of that city. It is not a one-day process. The day you get born again is not time to burn the world. In fact, even in your life, you're supposed to be spending time getting rid of chaos, Amalek. You're supposed to be repairing the world. You have received an amazing outpouring at Pentecost. Now you're in a time period of introspection. Are you living up to the vows that you made before your God? It's a time to get right because there will be a trumpet that sounds. This world will become the kingdom of God. Repent. It's at hand. And when it does, there will be the princes of the kingdom and there will be the subjects of the kingdom. And there will be those who are thrown outside of the kingdom. And as much as sheep and goats look alike, what you did and did not do during this time will determine what you are. He will stand before them as a shepherd stands before sheep. And he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. To some he will say, come and enjoy the kingdom prepared for you before the foundations of the world. And others he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, when did we see you hungry and naked? Lord, when did we feed you? When did you visit you in prison? And if you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And the reverse is true, too. You have been entrusted with a great, great honor. You have been called princes with God, even as Israel is a prince with God. You have the same commission that Adam had. Go forth and rebuild the world. Amalek has left it in destruction and utter waste. Tohu vavohu. You get to fill it with the presence of God. And when He is lifted up and draws all men to Him, He will fill everything in every way. Is that scripture starting to make more sense now? Everything in every way.
Will you be an instrument of his righteousness? Or will you be one of the nations that he dashes to pieces like poverty? Rosh Hashanah is the time that the people of God rehearse for his coming. And you have the opportunity. It's not Rosh Hashanah yet. We have another 10 days before it even starts. You have the opportunity to examine your kol nidri. Are you keeping up with his vows? You have an a time period to recognize he died and resurrected that he might find you his irresistible bride. You have a time period to rid yourself of Amalek outside your walls and inside your walls. You can make your righteous acts your wedding garment. You can put the oil-filled lamp in the window. You can look forward to the Day of Atonement because you're right with your God. Come on now, that's beautiful. How good would you feel? How good would you feel when the goat was killed for you and the other had left the building? The scapegoat somewhere else. And you were now free from sin, perfectly right with your God. You have that opportunity. You have that opportunity right now. Matt's going to play a song. We're going to worship together. You can leave any time you want to. Uh, we're not trying to have a marathon service. We're trying with all of our heart to give you an opportunity to get right with the King. We have focused on repentance for a month now. I ask you to do something more than focus on repentance now. More than anything else, Rosh Hashanah was a time where the nation examined themselves to see if they were performing the calling that God had for them to perform. Are you walking with Him in the power that He called you to walk in? Are you just skating on the outer edges hoping Amalek doesn't kill you? Hmm? Stand to your feet.